0: Good morning. Going to go live about a minute early today, I think. It's Septuagesima Sunday on the 1962 liturgical calendar. That is the liturgical calendar followed by those of us who are Latin Mass only Catholics. And I'll go over a little bit of what Septuagesima Sunday means at the end. Um, thanks to my wife for reminding me that today is Septuagesima Sunday. And yes, I did verify that for those who are going to right now take to my comments or, li- or live chat to say it's not. I have a liturgical calendar for 1962 on my desk right now and today is the 28th of january and the beginning of a micro season on the old pre-conciliar liturgical calendar and we'll get into a little bit of what that means here shortly so good morning to everybody in the live chat seeing people from japan here and kentucky and some other places i expect the live chat will fill up a little bit more as is often the case, we go a little we go live a little earlier than any other day of the week on a Sunday because I get my kids up and do my long drive for mass. So it's the news that we're talking about is the predictable reaction to the weird stuff going on in the Vatican on this week of Christian unity. What we've seen happen is a reaction to it from. People on our side of things, I guess you could say, who object to unrepentant heretics being given a access to some of the most important cathedrals and basilicas and parish buildings in Rome. I mean, the history of the you know Catholic Church and uh, the Church of England is pretty notorious. I don't need to go into details there, I think, but a lot of Catholics were mortified by layman Welby showing up. The two being and being given St. Bartholomew's to pray in to offer their quasi Eucharist, and then Anglicans, the Anglicans' parody of Vespers being offered at St. Peter's, and the pushback on this has been remarkable. Not just the pushback against it, but then the pushback against the pushback. So I'm going to go right into this. We can start with this piece by professional Pope's blainer. Robert Mickens, who writes for one of the most important uh, news outlets in the Church. Here it is from Lacroix International. They're not just—they're not the makers of that water, that carbonated water beverage. This is an actual one of the oldest and most important Catholic news outlets in the Church. In his "Letter from Rome" column, he's a columnist. So again, this is a pretty well-respected person in the public Church, and he has access to people we don't have. And it says here, our headline is, Pope takes the heresy hunters to task. Francis challenges all of us with a poignant reflection on the parable of the Good Samaritan at the conclusion of the eighth day week of prayer for Christian unity. None of us objects to Christian unity. Authentic Christian unity. Authentic Christian unity would be for these historic schisms between East and West, or... Catholics and Protestants coming to an end and then submitting to the apostolic See. That's what we want. What we want is an authentic Christian unity, not fake Christian unity, not fake ecumenical dialogue. I see Dallas and Ohio chiming in the UK, New York, Spain, two people from Spain actually in the live chat. So good morning to all of you. So, here we're we're going to be told that because we object to the what happened in Saint uh, in the Vatican this week to in the during the week of so-called Christian unity, we're the bad guys. So be be ready for this. You and I are the problems. If you objected to watching the legacy of Saint Thomas More, who I have a homily from going live on this channel about an hour after this live stream will be done. If you object to watching the legacy of St. Thomas More, the English martyrs, and the treatment of the Church of England besmirched and cast aside by this false ecumenical session in Rome, you are the bad guy. Apparently, we're the evil ones. Moreover, if you or I object to Francis's evil blessings that he just tripled down on, and we'll talk about that here too, then you're the bad guy. Not the people who have rendered the term heresy and orthodoxy meaningless. Not the people who have promoted the evil ideology of the flesh that is so in vogue in the secular world and tried to bring that into the Church. No, it's you and I who are apparently the problems. Anyone who objects to all of this. So let's go over this this article bit by bit, because Robert Mickens is one of those people who gets, when he writes things, people pay attention and not just the Pope's blaming crowd out there. So, quote, "...the mainline churches in the Northern Hemisphere have just concluded the week of prayer for Christian unity." By many of the comments that appeared on social media during the January 18th to 25th commemoration, it would seem that at least some English speakers who describe themselves as traditional or loyal Catholics saw this annual ecumenical event as a propitious time to remind Christians who are not in communion with the Church of Rome that they are heretics. Some of these staunch Catholics who are particularly esteemed that Pope Francis allowed the Archbishop, I'll put quotes there for Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Justin Welby, and his fellow Anglicans to celebrate the Eucharist at St. Bartholomew's on the Tiber Island in Rome. Let's pause there. They were by definition not celebrating the Eucharist at St. Bartholomew's on, on the Tiber Island in Rome because, as Pope Leo XIII defined solemnly, Anglican holy orders are null and void. He invoked the power of the papacy to do it. People keep trying to play fast and loose with what that means and wanting to, to revisit the, the issue, but Pope Leo Thirteenth solemnly defined it. And issue should be settled. No, he continues, this is the 10th century church that John Paul II designated during, during Jubilee 2000 to be a shrine to the new Christian martyrs of the 20th and 21st centuries. The Catholic loyalists were quick to point out, sometimes in vulgar and insulting terms, that Mr. Welby, as most of them called him, and the other Anglican bishops and priests were not validly ordained. A reminder that per Leo Thirteenth Apostolic curia of 1896, Anglican orders are absolutely null and utterly void, said a post on X, formerly Twitter, that was replicated in many, many variations, most of which were just too nasty and uncharitable to repeat here. Uncharitable towards heresy. Hmm, it's an interesting thought. The words heretic and heresy were also hurled mercilessly at non-Catholics over and over again, and they were aimed at the current Pope as well, sometimes quite explicitly. Let's pause there. Sure, we're required to be charitable even to people who are not in the church. Charity, though, involves telling the truth. You're not being charitable by repeating falsehoods. The church has solemnly solemnly defined their holy orders as not being valid, meaning there was no Eucharist. There was no... Welby's as much an archbishop as, uh, what is that guy, T.D. Jakes, or whatever his name is, the guy who just calls himself Bishop Jakes the American uh, preacher who just run, runs around doing the prosperity gospel thing. That guy, if you know who I'm talking about, put his name in the live chat if you, if you know who I'm talking about. It's the same kind of thing. The church has solemnly defined this. The case is settled. True charity involves telling the truth to people, whether they want to hear it or not. And sure, sometimes people go too far. I mean, I, have, I go back and forth with telling people that maybe... Going on, to t- going on to Twitter and getting involved in the Catholic side of Twitter is good or not. <laughs> I go back and forth on that a lot because sometimes things just get pretty bad there, honestly. But this is not a reason to be upset at Catholics. You're, the point of telling them the truth is to so they correct the bad situation they're in. And the bad situation they are in is that their organization is in schism from Rome. And they have, you know, pretend sacraments and all the rest. It would be—it's our duty to try to bring them home. That is what true Christian unity would be, under one fold, under the the leadership of the Roman Pontiff, whoever that may be at any given time in history. So then, Francis, of course, uh, brings in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this is just amazing. So back to this article. We can confidently and thankfully say that the vast majority of the world's Catholics do not share these views. And neither does Pope Francis, obviously. Just like Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI before him, he gathered with prelates and pastors of the mainline Christian denominations on January 25th, the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, for ecumenical vespers in the papal basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. And my brother, Archbishop Justin, as the Pope called him, was among them and even preached after Francis delivered a homily on Luke chapters 10 to 25, 10 25 to 37. Okay, so the church also forbids public participation and prayer and worship with those who are not in communion with the church public private things are a bit different, you know, saying grace at your meals or whatever the church is kind of that. But even then you're always told to sort of, there's a limit, like going to a wedding is a, one of those kind of like things you'll hear different from traditional sources. You'll hear different kinds of things to, you know, responses to that question, but, you know, grace over meals and that kind of thing is one thing. But if you're, you're not generally supposed to have to do public acts of worship with those not in communion with the church. And here we have, you know, Robert Mick is doing the work of traditionalists by reminding him that this is not a new problem under Francis. Okay. Uh, being aware of the problems in the church right now does not mean that you recognize that Francis is a problem. Problems in the church predate him significantly. Francis is the logical next step from the work his predecessors did before him. He just is. That's where we are right now. Yes, it'd be nice to have some of his predecessors back instead of him, obviously, but he's just a logical next step. Anyway, Mickens continues saying we're familiar with this passage. It's one of those numerous occasions in the Gospels when the doctors of the law try to lay a trap for Jesus. In this episode, one of them asks him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns it back on this canon lawyer and asks him what the law has to say on the matter. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself, the lawyer says. It's interesting that he's framing this man as a lawyer. You notice that? This is, again, in the voking of the law. Well, again, Jesus wiped away the old law for the most part, but except for, like, the commandments and a few things. And Jesus congratulates him, but the man wants to justify himself and asks a further question. And who is my neighbor? Again, it is aimed at tripping up Jesus. Is it aimed at tripping up Jesus? At this point, Jesus responds by narrating the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Pope's homily is marvelous, and it's worth carefully reading and meditating upon. And he gives you a link to it if you want to read it. What can I get and how can I divide? Francis points out that the doctor of the law doesn't want to learn anything from Jesus. He only wants to test him. The Pope says this religious authority's greater insincerity is asking what he can get or possess from God. These are the signs of a distorted religiosity based on getting rather than giving, in which God becomes a means of obtaining what I want, rather than an end to be loved with all our heart, the Pope says. This religious scholar then answers Jesus' question about what the law says, and then presses Jesus to explain who is one's neighbor. The Pope says Jesus is poignant, quoting Francis. The first question risks reducing God to our own needs. The question attempts to divide, to separate people into those who we should love and those who we should shun. This kind of division is never from God. It is from the devil who divides, he says, end quote. All right, so hold on. There is no love in letting people persist in error. No love whatsoever in that. Heresy is a mortal sin. Do people understand that? Schism is a mortal sin. What are the consequences of mortal sin? You know, there was an article I wanted to riff on. I ended up passing it by. But people were, you know, complaining that we want Francis to preach fire and brimstone. What we want Francis to do is to preach the truth. Not just mercy, but the justice of God. Because without the justice of God, then you just reduce God's mercy to being like group hugs and good feelings and and good inclinations and good words and good in good attitudes about things. It's all that you reduce it to. Without the justice of God, God's mercy makes zero sense. Let's go back to this. The parable, of course, is about a poor fellow who gets uh, taken advantage of and is left for, left on the side of the road. A priest and another pious person go to lengths to ignore him, while a Samaritan, one someone these two devoutly religious men detest precisely because he is not religious, is the one who helps the man up. People who failed to do good, who proved callous were the priest and the Levite, who were more concerned with respecting their religious traditions than with coming to the aid of a suffering person, the Pope said. The one who demonstrates what it means to be a neighbor is instead a heretic, a Samaritan. this is again him telling us that we have a lot to learn from from people who reject our faith, that they are the good examples of this. This is not the first time he said this. You remember when he told us about the adherence to the hammer and sickle, that their ideology, they are the best Christians? You remember that? I covered that a couple weeks ago. This is him adding to that, saying more of the same. Now what does this heretic do? He draws near, he feels compassion. He bends down and gently tends the wounds of that brother. He is concerned for him, regardless of his past and his failings, and he puts himself wholly at his service, said Francis. Hearing these words, one cannot be but wonder if the Pope was addressing them to those in his own church, the staunch, traditional, loyal, and practicing Catholics. It's amazing to use the word rigid here. Who have criticized him for showing compassion and openness and hospitality to people who are non-believers, for treating non-Catholics as they are part of us, not divided from us, and allowing them to worship to their own customs in our own church buildings. Our problem is that they, there's no real call to conversion. Souls are on the line. Do you believe that salvation is only found in the church or not? It's a dogma of the faith. They'll tell you, of course they do. And then they will expand the definition of what that actually means to make it m- meaningless. Reducing it to basically being a good person who with a well-formed conscience. That's what they'll mean. Baptism might help. That's what they reduce it to. What he's doing here is not compassionate. It's quite the opposite of that. It's letting people persist in error, persist in sin. He goes on. The right question is not who is my neighbor, but do I act like a neighbor, the Pope said. And this is a key question for our efforts to reconstitute the unity of the one but fractured church of Jesus Christ. Only a love that becomes gratuitous service, only the love that Jesus taught and embodied will bring separated Christians closer to one another, Francis said. Actually, only the truth will. And the number of times we've heard that that we've seen people Kindly but honestly preach the truth to them about uh, errors is what does work the best to bring people home. Because if you do not make it clear that there is no salvation outside the church, outside the true church, what is the point of them coming home? There is no point. How many times, if, if you are, how many times I've seen this personally a few times in my life where for some reason they're a uh, Presbyterian or, um, you know, a Lutheran or some others would come to an ordinary form mass, a Novus Ordo mass. And they come and they see the way the mass is and be like, this is exactly like what I have in my church. And then you never see them again. We do no service to people by making them comfortable. We do service to them, true charity to them by making the truth known about what the consequences of persisting in sin are. Once again, one asked what kind of love in concrete terms. The Pope responded on the final day of the octave for Christian unity with these words: "Only that love which does not appeal to the past in order to remain aloof or to point to a fin- point of finger. Only that love which, in God's name, puts our brothers and sisters before the ironclad defense of our own religious structures. Only that love will unite us first our brothers and sisters, then the structures." This is the core of why he does not like traditional Catholics. He believes in sacrificing the truth for brotherhood for unity that, that there is no real truth this he is the biggest proponent of a kind of relativism the most insidious kind of relativism the relativism of theology the this idea that you can that you know, as Bishop Barron famously told somebody on the internet for the whole world to watch, causing great scandal, that our Lord is the privileged way. This is that theology, and it, this is where I mean. He, I mean, there's not much left. Of this we may as well finish it. He said, he, t- Micken says, and for Telly Tutti, that was that man. That 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 was uh, the last encyclical he wrote that caused a gigantic storm in the church. Before we started getting traditionalist Custodas. he said his encyclical on human fraternity." Again, using um, the French Revolution language there. Francis spells out the dire consequences the world faces. We refuse to see ourselves and live more responsibly and charitably as one big human family. During ecumenical vespers at St. Paul's outside the wall, he pointed out, if tacitly, that Christians must be a model example of this. Here is what he said each baptized person is a member of the one body of Christ. What is more, everyone in this world is my brother or my sister. And all together we compose that symphony of humanity, of which Christ is the firstborn and redeemer. As Saint Irenaeus, whom I had the joy of proclaiming doctor of unity, we'll see how long that stands after, uh, after he's gone, observed, one who seeks the truth should not concentrate on the differences between one note and another, thinking as if each was created separately and apart from the others. Instead, he should realize that one and the same person composed the entire melody. Pope Francis' challenges, Pope Francis's challenge to the heresy hunters in any denomination and to all of us is to seriously ask ourselves this question. Do I and then my community, my church, my spirituality act like a neighbor? It's a challenge to traditional Catholics. And the answer to that question would be yes, you do act like a neighbor by telling people the truth. by trying to help them come in out of, out of the darkness of sin. This goes down to fiducius supplicants. This goes down to everything we've seen. Truth is sacrificed for making people feel good there's no other way to describe it you do not bring people home to the unity of the faith by making it seem like that there's no reason to come home to the unity of the faith thank you for the super chat joe um what is religiously (laughs) well i when i don't know what they mean by that word when uh if they're not talking about, you know, an integrity to the faith. I don't know what they're talking about there. Frankie said it'd be great if the Pope talked about the spiritual acts of mercy sometime. You can't talk about the spiritual acts of mercy with their, with the way they push things because the spiritual acts of mercy are about the integrity of the faith, about bringing souls to Christ, by bringing him into the fold of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Mike Rizzio says the Pope is doing the opposite. He's on the low ground and lowering the gates. Precisely. All right. Is there an example of Christ blessing the James Martin Krauses and Grod and- in the chat? Uh, no. The The modernists like to point out that, fr- that Jesus himself didn't have, say anything recorded in scripture about that. They make it sound like he said nothing about that, but as I think it's the apostle John tells us, uh, there was a lot more that Jesus said and did that was not recorded in those pages. But St. Paul tells us a lot about that stuff. He really does. And I guarantee you that our Lord, the second person of the Trinity, would not be a fan or supportive of a sin that this that scripture has called and called defined one as crying out to heaven for justice. All right, and this all reminds me of, Pastor Jimmy or Pastor Tommy Reese of the Jesuit Church and his defense of fiducia supplicants. He has this article at the National Catholic Reporter. I covered this in a, a, a video a few days ago. Um, this, it, but this really does remind me of this. I call it, it was my video the stupidest defense of fiducia supplicants we've seen. Um, he said that it would actually be nice if the African bishops would oppose efforts to make the James Martin sin a violation of the secular law on the continent. He said that. Remember, this is being nice and sacrificing the truth on the altar of good feelings, a false religion, if there was ever one, a false idol. A Jesuit priest wants to make the church work publicly to make sins that crowd to heaven for justice acceptable to society. Think about that. Pastor Tommy Reese goes on in that piece to say the following quote, The criticism of the new declaration, fiducia supplicants, is hardly limited to Africa. Even though the declaration clearly states that the blessing would be granted to James Martin types without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's perennial teaching on holy matrimony, sure it wouldn't, many Catholic conservatives in the West exploded in opposition to the document. The vitriolic response is shocking and against every traditional deference to papal authority and church unity, there's that word again, the hierarchy owes the pope. The last time that a large number of bishops publicly disagreed with a pope was over the 1968 encyclical Humanae Vitae, which forbade the barriers to being fruitful and multiplying. Many bishops and theologians disagreed with Pope Paul VI, but these bishops expressed their views respectfully. Oh, really? <laughs> Unlike the bishops disagreeing with Francis and urged couples to read the encyclical and then follow their consciences. Most American couples follow their consciences rather than the Pope. You know that's an interesting way he has of defending fiducia supplicants, by showing that most that most people in the West ignored the Orthodox teachings of the Church <coughs> and went their own way, which is weird way to defend fiducia supplicants, which goes against the Orthodox teachings of the Church and goes Francis's way. Today, very few American Catholic women completely abstain from the use of those devices in their fertile years. These liberal Catholics were called cafeteria Catholics by their critics because they picked and chose which papal teachings they would follow. Nowadays, conservatives who pride themselves on their loyalty to Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI and castigated progressives when they disagreed with the popes had become cafeteria Catholics, only worse. Not only do they pick and choose which of Francis's teachings to support, they criticize him loudly and disrespectfully. There is no indication that Jesus was as obsessed with people's private parts, private lives as modern Christians seem to be. Some theologians blame this on St. Augustine, whose issues of the flesh influenced his theology. Others point to the influence of the Stoics on Christian moral theology. Still others blame the fact that the church is run by celibate clergy. <laughs> End quote. Again, rejecting The actual perennial teachings of the church and refusing to submit to heretical proclamations by an alleged pontiff makes you the cafeteria Catholic now. It makes you the bad guy. It's the same logic as Robert Mickens was using in his defense of that heretical schismatic parade going on in Rome just several days ago. These two issues, the open heresy at St. Bartholomew's and later at St. Peter's with their parody of Vespers and the James Martin sin, these two issues, and specifically their defense by those who should know better, says a lot more about those who defend these issues than they do about those who object to them. Those who defend heresy reveal themselves to, at the very least, not care one bit about the fundamentals of the Catholic faith, the integrity of the faith, or about being in continuity with what came in the church before. That's at the very least. Some of you, I'm sure, would say it all, but shows them to be fellow travelers with heresy, that they are themselves heretics. Now, as for the James Martin sin, it's worth noting that the, that those most focused on promoting that sin and acceptance in the church are often suspected of being in the grips of that sin themselves, with identifying on a fundamental and very personal level with that sin, and they just keep it under wraps. James Martin was famously told by his superior general that he was not allowed to publicly talk about his own, I uh, us we'll say, inclinations in that regard. And I have to ask if Pastor Tommy Reese was told the same thing, because his defense of Fiducia supplicants and really this issue, he's been defending this issue for years. This was not the first time I've talked about him defending that issue on my channel. It's been a while because he doesn't have the public cachet of, uh, you know, Pastor Jimmy Martin. But you have to ask yourself, those who defend that issue and do so very vociferously, why is this so personal to them? Why is this such a person that it's so personal to them? When Scripture makes it very, very clear that the magisterium of the Church has made this very, very clear. Why is this so personal to them? And why do they call us the Cafeteria Catholics for objecting to the deposit of the faith being rejected? It was those who, who rejected the Church's moral teachings that go back to the first century on the humane Vitae issue that were the Cafeteria Catholics. Let's, now let's shift briefly to some better news, actually, because here we have what I would call um, something from a different. This is a from a different Bishop Fernandez. This is not from the bad Fernandez not from the Fernandez who's in charge of uh, deconstructing the the doctrine of the faith. This is Monsignor Demetrio Fernandez, and he gives a he actually gave a homily about the devil which is fantastic. I wish I wish we had more of that. No, you know, we don't have to have it all the time, you know, focusing on the love of Christ and how the sacraments can help us be free of sin. And all that is probably better than all the time, but we should be hearing this stuff on a regular basis. And so it's always, so whenever you're, if your priest usually gives positive or just teaching homilies, but when he does eventually periodically give you the, you know, four last things homily, the, the homilies about the about the reality of the devil and evil, thank him after mass. Do that. Even if it's quietly, you know, don't bring attention to yourselves because oftentimes those homilies get a lot of pushback from them. You anyway, know, here's what he had to say. This is from InfoVaticana. In our days, there are those who allow themselves the luxury of denying the existence of the devil. He is the Bishop of Cordoba in Mexico. Now, I could not find the full text of this. I would have recorded it for you with the text on screen if I could. The um, I, I looked for the Diocese of Cordoba website, and I found it, but I could not find his pastoral letters on there. Not all websites in the church are built as well as, say, Chicago's got a great website, despite who's running that diocese, you know, as an example, as a counterexample. So let's talk about this very briefly. He says, there is what this, this is what he expressed in his pastoral letter this week. Quote, in our days, there are those who allow themselves the luxury of denying the existence of the devil. They explain these evangelical phenomena as, as diseases of man or as a way of expressing a fight against anonymous evil. However, those in the know warn that one of the victories of the devil in our time is to make us believe that he does not exist, and thus he can act at will, camouflage in a thousand ways, laments the Cordoba prelate. Monsignor Demetrio explains in his letter that, quote, in the gospel, Jesus' direct action against Satan is evident and continuous. The devil has even dared to tempt Jesus on several occasions, offering him the lies of his proposals, or wanting to separate him from the path indicated by the Father for the redemption of the world, obedience to the way of the cross. I think Pastor Tommy Reese and Francis and Mr. Mickens should uh, be reminded about the way of the cross, I think. As the Bishop of Cordoba points out, Jesus teaches us that one cannot dialogue with the devil. Either we reject him outright immediately or he envelops us. He deceives us and leads us to perdition. In this sense, the Bishop warns that in our days, the devil is on the loose since he continues to deceive some and others and claims the occasional victory. He points out that the discouragement and discouragement are signs of demonic action, the distrust. The Bishop of Cordoba affirms that the devil is responsible for continually sowing in us the distrust that you are not worth it, that is not worth trying, so that we give up on the high vocation to which God calls us. We can say that the life of a Christian is continuous combat against the consequences of previous sins, which incline us to evil and against the devil that seeps in our weak points to make us fall, to deviate us from the path of good. To defeat the demon, the Bishop explains that Jesus teaches us to live in obedience to God and his word. The attitude of the Christian believers to submit to the will of God, which is expressed in different ways, in the advice of a good friend, the spiritual direction of a priest, in the continuous recourse to prayer, which feeds the spirit of faith. Our friend St. Teresa of Jesus said that he who does not pray does not need a demon to tempt him. He has enough with his inner disorder, and the enemy will take advantage of it to deceive him, and so discouragement and distrust in his soul, concludes the bishop. I'll have a link to this in my show notes here a few minutes after the stream is over. I would love to hear more homilies like that but we rarely hear them. The best homily we've gotten from Francis was just a few weeks ago when he told us not to dialogue with the devil. Good advice. I kind of wish he'd take it himself though. All right. So as I, may, as I may, m- mentioned at the beginning of this, it is on the 1962 liturgical calendar. The, uh, it is Septuagesima Sunday. Uh, that, so I do want to mention that briefly here. It's a kind of a mini pre-Lent season. And just give you something from Catholic culture. This is uh, by Jennifer Gregory Miller, published four years ago, actually. Um, And uh, I guess in 2020, Septuagintus Sunday was on Valentine's Day. But Septuagintus Sunday is a liturgical season in the 1962, and current Roman calendar differ only by one season. The extraordinary form follows the 1962 calendar. That's the traditional Latin mass, the pre- not the Novus Ordo, which is vastly different forms of liturgy. Uh, The traditional uh, liturgical calendar includes a pre-Lenten season called Septuagesima. The word Septuagesima is Latin for 70th. Let's try to boost this on screen so you can follow along. It's about the name of the liturgical season and the name of the Sunday. Septuagesima Sunday marks the beginning of the shortest liturgical season. This season is 17 days long and includes the three Sundays before Ash Wednesday. The length of the season never changes, but the start date is dependent on the moving date of Easter that can fall between March 25th and April 25th. Septuagesima Sunday can be as early as January 18th. Um, Lent, or The end of Lent this year is really early. Uh, my... Now 10-month-old son's birthday is March 29th, which I th- believe is good <laughs> holy Saturday this year. So We're going to hold off on his birthday celebrations until after Easter, which is like two days later. Or, well, the next day. So his birthday stuff will be on Easter Monday, I think. The origins of Septuagessima as a liturgical season are obscure. This is one of the last liturgical seasons to be added to the calendar. The roots are Roman. It is not mentioned until the 6th century during the time of Pope St. Gregory the Great. It is often thought St. Gregory himself might have written the mass formularies, especially since the content reflects so much of the conflict and suffering during the time. And here's an excerpt from uh, St. Gregory the Great. The note of sadness in most of the texts of these masses has given rise to the theory that they were composed at a time when Italy, Rome in particular, were once more exposed to, to, well, stuff very similar to what's going on in America right now and threatened with misfortunes, etc. The 6th century, the time of the institution of Septuagissima, was also a period of pillage and havoc. And hence, we have a sorrowful echo in the petitions framed at this time. So it's not from St. Gregory the Great, it's actually from a modern writer. The Septuagissima Sunday was to help people ease into Lent as a type of preconditioning program. Liturgically, it looked and felt very much like Lent. The glory and alleluia were no longer allowed. The tone was very penitential, with the priest wearing purple vestments. The main difference would be that there were no fasting requirements in the later centuries. It's Latin for 70th. Pre-Lent, as this period may be called, consists of three Sundays with particularly numbered names, Septuagesima, Sextuagesima, and Quinquagagesima. Before you get out your calendar count start counting, even the church was aware that these numbers do not properly reflect that the number of days before Easter, as their name suggests. Septuagesima and the others are actually falling the 61st, 50th, and 47th days before Easter, respectively. The titles seem to be arbitrarily chosen. So... The, uh don't look too much into like into the numbers related to it, but we are now entering a pre-Lent uh, penitential season, at least on the traditional calendar. And if you don't follow the traditional calendar, I do suggest you at least try to observe it. Um, if you're gonna, there are some people who are going to who would give up all their coffee during Lent, all their caffeine. This might be a good time to start dialing the caffeine down a bit. Um, um, yeah. Uh, yes, my son's birthday is on Good Friday this year, <laughs> so that's why we're not doing his birthday until three days later. So, um, but yeah, so it is good. Good morning to you in Oklahoma city. Philip Webb in reference to our previous story says Cordoba area has three TLMs, including a small church, Pius V. fifth. Most of Spain is not too friendly to the TLM. Um, I think there's a two Cordoba dioceses. I'm pretty sure this is a, that, uh, I was referencing the a Bishop of Cordoba in Mexico. But I might be wrong about that because I'm pretty sure that's actually Spanish. He's got a Spanish flag in the picture on that article with him. I might be wrong. Let me know in the chat if he's from Spain or Mexico. Because I, when trying to find this document, I found two different Cordoba dioceses. Are there any final thoughts in the chat? Because it is getting close to the time where I got to start getting my family ready for mass. If you have thoughts now, we'll bring them to my attention. Any questions or whatnot, and we will get to them. The rosary is a place. It, it is a, well, I mean, it does. If you're praying the rosary properly, it will take you out of your place around you. But uh, it's easy to get distracted praying the rosary. I'm guilty of it as much as anybody else. Um, let's see. He needs to get the, he needs to get his act, get those, well, where did that one go? There is a conversation about a particular priest I'm not familiar with in the chat going on. Um, but yes, there's a good one. Evelyn says, perhaps Francis is hiding behind how Jesus surrounded himself with sinners. Jesus also said, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Right. And we've seen that with the modernists quite a lot, actually, that there's a embracing almost of sin and surrounding people with sinners and doing so they say in the name of love. But then there's not the, the true act of love, which is calling them to conversion and calling them to repentance. And what if if, more, if heresy is a mortal sin, then what is the act of repentance for heresy? If schism is a sin, what is the act of, her, uh, or of repentance for schism? It's ending those practices and coming back into communion with Rome. Should the SSPX go pre-55? I've always wondered why they don't do that, but then I saw that it's because um, Archbishop Lefebvre as, as a sign of uh, loyalty to the church dedicated, was dedicated to the 62 liturgy. I would like to see the uh, the 55 liturgical reforms done by Bugnini, who was the architect of the new mass 15 years later. I'd like to see those undone, but that'll be, that's up to the Roman authorities. I think the SSPX are doing fine where they are. Um, Anna Rao says, if you lie down with flogs, you get up with fleas. If one immerses oneself in associations contrary to Christ, he'll surely begin to adapt to sin and heresy, even if he thinks he's doing God's work. And that is cautionary for every single one of us, especially those of us who like publicly talk about these things. We have to be very careful with our associations and the things that we talk and, you know, how we live our lives, you know, privately. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap that up because we do kind of get ready for mass around here. So thank you for tuning in today, folks. Um, And as pray for everybody we talked about today. You know, Robert Mickens, uh, Pastor Tommy Reese of the Jesuit Church, Francis whoever else. And as always, pray for the church. Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.